Welcome to the Chronically Courageous Podcast. I'm your host, Bonnie Howard. Since I was a child, I've had chronic pain, yet was told time and time again that it was all in my head. So I pushed through my symptoms and I built a successful career until I found myself crouched on the floor of my office, barely conscious. After finally getting a diagnosis, I had to learn how to embrace the life I've been given as fully and happily as possible. Now, it's my mission to help you do the same. Join my guests and I each week for inspiring stories and tips on navigating the complexities of chronic illness. Together, I believe we can move forward with courage, passion, and purpose. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to this week's episode of The Chronically Courageous. And I know I say this often, but this week I really am probably more excited than I've ever been because I have my one of my personal heroes on the show, Laura Bloom. And Laura is the president and CEO of the Ehlers-Danlos Society, and she's responsible for globally raising awareness of rare, chronic, and invisible diseases, specializing in Ehlers-Danlos syndromes, hypermobile spectrum disorders, and related disorders. Before joining the Ehlers-Danlos Society, Laura ran EDS UK from 2010 to 2015. And she manages coordinated medical collaboration, raising funds for research and focusing on global progression of EDS and HSD. She speaks at conferences all over the world, lecturing to medical students and professionals and supports specialists in the field by offering her experience as a leading patient expert. Laura played a key role in the recent international effort to reclassify EDS and create management and care guidelines. She was a published author on the subsequent classification publication of the American Journal of Medical Genetics in March of 2017, and serves on a steering committee of the International Consortium for EDS and Related Disorders. This year has been an exciting year for Laura. She commemorated 10 years in the field of patient advocacy for Ehlers-Danlos syndromes and hypermobile hypermobility spectrum disorders, chronic illnesses, and rare diseases, and was therefore officially appointed a professor of practice in patient engagement and global collaboration at Penn State College of Medicine on March 11, 2020. Congratulations, Laura. Thank you. Or should I say Dr. Bloom? You can me Laura. So... Those are just some highlights from Laura's bio. I, um, as I'm recording this, it is seven in the morning my time. And any of you who know me know that seven in the morning is not usually a time that my eyeballs see the daylight. So, oh wow, I'm very grateful. Thank you. I didn't realize it was so early for you. There. That's wow. That's okay. I feel bad. <laughs> no worries. I'm actually in Scottsdale, Arizona, where the conference was supposed to have been held this year and hopefully will still be next year. So um, looking forward to being a part of that. Indeed. So one thing I wanted to mention that is not in Laura's formal bio, but like I said, when I first came on, Laura is my personal hero and a hero to so many others in this community of Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome and Hypermobility Spectrum Disorders. I had the opportunity to meet Laura at the EDS Global Learning Conference in 2019 in Nashville and was blown away by the amount of dedication and passion and compassion that she has for the cause and all of the people in it. And um, just have so, so much gratitude for you, Laura, for everything that you do. And the first time that I walked into that room in the conference was the first time in my life where I felt like I wasn't alone for the first time. I, you know, trying not to get emotional, but um, as you know, many of us don't get that validation throughout our lives. We are told we're hypochondriacs, that it's all in our head. And we really start to question ourselves and, you know, our own sanity at some point. I know I did. And when I walked in that room and was met with such 
a depth of understanding it. I can't tell you the healing that took place from that. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you from the bottom of my heart for that. No, thank you. That's very kind of you. And I, it's, uh, you know, what, what got me today is I too was that person who walked into a room for the first time and saw other people like me and felt a validation that I never had before. And it's what led me to today and it's what spurs me on every day to continue what I'm doing. So um, I never forget and I, I, I hope I never forget what it felt like to feel that alone and desperate for answers. And I think that that's what uh, makes the, the hard days seem possible because there's still so much to do and so many people to reach so that no one has to feel like that again. Right. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so, Laura, you're not only an advocate for the cause, and I know that many times you get so immersed in what you're doing for the society and for all of us, but what people sometimes don't realize is you're also a patient and you have Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. So how do you manage all that you do? Because you are torn in so many different directions and uh, I just want to know, how do you do it? It's hard. Um, and it's, it's funny, you know, we're, we're, we're in 2020. We're at a time where the world has been put on pause. Uh, prior to this year, you know, even, even the beginning of this year, I'd already been to Cambodia, Vietnam, New York, Hershey, you know, and that was before February. Mm -hmm. So in a month and a half, I'd already been to those places. And it, that was my life. And I, I hope will be again, you know, someday soon, but it was constant on the go relentless and I really love that weirdly because it's a wonderful distraction it helps me manage my pain and it it makes me feel incredibly fulfilled professionally and pers personally to be able to do the, the work I do uh, you know welcome in 2020 and it's a very different world we live in and whilst I'm still able to do incredibly fulfilling work the kind of intense distraction of it has gone in terms of travel and that's uh, affected me more than I ever thought it would actually um, and what it's done is it's is it's forced me to sit back and go wow that was a lot that the lot you know the last five years I, I pretty much have not stopped and I think it makes you realize how much you have done and and how to never take for granted that you're able to travel, that you're able to connect with all those people that you're able to make those differences. Because, you know, the progression has happened this year, but not at the speed it would if we could get together, if we could meet in person, if we could, you know, drive collaborations in person. So it is frustrating, but then some other incredible things have come out of it, you know, realizing the power of virtual events, reaching more people than we ever have, translating materials into more languages than we ever have so you know i always like to say with every challenge should come an opportunity and you know i i see that personally as well um this challenge has given me an opportunity to reflect um and to you know be grateful for for what was possible and i just i manage things more when there's more going on i can't really give a reason for that i i speak to people in the community that feel the same and i speak to others that say i could never do in a million years what you do i think everyone i think that's what needs to be understood more that everyone is different you know there's 14 types of eds there's hsd within every type within eds within hsd there's a big spectrum um there's people out there that are athletes professionals ceos musicians you know everything in between and there's people that struggle to even get out of bed that are in a wheelchair and there's no right or wrong it's just a difference of experience and sometimes that that difference can be impacted by your access to care your diagnostic odyssey how affected you are all these things can make an impact and it doesn't make it any less real um, or any less important so i think whilst there's so much to do that to me is such a driving force to be able to continue and manage all the different things i think one thing that this year has given me the reflection of is realizing actually how hard it is to to maintain Lara Bloom patient wife friend daughter sister and Lara Bloom CEO advocate professor uh, all of these things and how much they overlap and sometimes blur into another and what I've been really working on this year is to actually focus a little bit more on separating them because it can become consuming. You know, I did a monthly vlog 
for two years and I loved doing my vlog. But when lockdown happened, um, I realized that obviously when you're traveling around the world and you're going to events all the time, it makes perfect viewing for a vlog and it's why I started it. But when you're sitting at a desk every day, it's not very fun to watch. <laughs> and so I felt the pressure of having to share more and more of my private life and my personal story. And I don't necessarily want to do that. You know, there's a, there's a, there's a real balance of, you know, sharing so that you're identifiable and people feel like they know you and also sharing too much where you actually become a source of judgment and ridicule and trolling and everything else. And that was really, really hard. Mm. Um, that's, I think, one of the hardest things. So this year has also been about starting to separate that a little bit more. I've paused my vlog until next year, until things get back to normal. And not having that pressure of, oh, what should I capture? What should I film? Has, has been a, a real relief. Yeah, yeah. So we're talking, since we're on the subject of the pandemic, and you know, 2020 has been, to say the least, a very unusual year. So talk to me about COVID. I, I think you have a, a personal story there. So could you tell us about that? Yes. Um, so it, it was March. It was I, the last time I went out pre-lockdown was March 13th. And I know that because it was my sister's birthday. And we went to my uh, parents' house and we had a big Friday night dinner. I'm Jewish, so it was a big Shabbos dinner. Me too. Um, and I felt fine, you know. I felt like I might have had a bit of a tickle, but I didn't feel ill. Uh, you know, the thing is, is I my breathing and my lungs are my biggest issue. So for me to have a bit of a tickle is actually quite normal. Didn't feel ill, didn't have fever, didn't lo have loss of taste, nothing like that. And then Monday came and suddenly I felt ill. And it was difficult to ignore that it could have been COVID at that time. You know, we were suddenly, we weren't in lockdown yet. We were approaching it. And at that moment, uh, because I have some immune deficiencies, I'm very susceptible to pneumonia. I decided to, uh, to basically stay in and I imposed my own lockdown, even though everyone else was still going out. Um, and then I got progressively worse that week. I was, I went into hospital and uh, my brother-in-law works out up in London as a doctor and he said you know the best place to go is St Thomas's in London and I so we went there and I was I remember not really remembering most of the journey up there I was just terribly ill and got there and they did a chest x-ray and they saw a pneumonia on my right lung and they said you know we can't test you unless we admit you you're able to regulate your oxygen on room air albeit a challenge and you're at more risk by being admitted right now than not. So I was very happy to hear that, but obviously concerned to hear that I had suspected COVID and pneumonia. Uh, went back home and then the Monday, I think it was the 23rd of March. I remember all these dates because it was my 40th on the 25th of March. Right. So it's very easy to remember everything. Uh, the 23rd of March, maybe actually the 24th of March. It was the 24th of March where I had a, a pulse oximeter at home. And I, if, you, if you've used one, you, it alarms when things have dropped. Mm. And I had it on my finger the whole time. And it was just going off as an alarm the whole time. Oh. I was going down to like 85, oh, but it's worse. And having doctors in the family, we were constantly FaceTiming them and they were like, that's it, you've got to go in. Mm. And I still didn't want to go in because I was still like, it might just be pneumonia. You know, I've got pneumonia. It's bad enough. That can cause what I'm feeling. Sure. Then you're watching the news and you're seeing people die and you're just, it's very, very frightening. Mm. So I called my cardiologist who's looked after me for years. who knows me very well. And he kind of did a bit of a virtual appointment with me. And by the end of it, he said, called 999. I don't want you even waiting. I want you in an ambulance and I want you to hospital. So I was taken in by ambulance. My wife obviously couldn't come with me. And there was like a triage system where there was literally lines of beds from the ambulances waiting to go into this COVID secure A&E mm. part. And it was like, can they sit, stand, or do they need a bed? And it was deemed that I needed a bed. So I was put into a, in a little um, section and I was in a bed. Uh, they gave me some oxygen and they said, you know, pretty much 99% sure you've got COVID. We are now going to swab you and we're going to bring you in. And then 
I don't know what happened, but at least three or four hours went past and I was waiting to go up to a ward. And then they said, we've decided we are going to virtually admit you. Although it's a struggle and your pulse, your oxygen is going down, when the alarm goes off, you are able to bring it back up with room air. And we are really under pressure for beds. Um, so we're going to virtually admit you. We're going to increase the antibiotics. And if anything happens whatsoever, you call us straight back and we'll get you in. And I was actually incredibly relieved, not least of all, I didn't want to wake up on my 40th birthday in, in a in hospital, mm, no. but also the kind of reassurance that I was able to bring my oxygen back up and also that I was getting a COVID test. So I thought I'd have some clarity. Um, so I went home and they, the virtual admitting process was incredible. They called me every single day mm. and they didn't check in. They asked questions. They ran through my SATs. Um, it was really amazing. And I was very, very impressed and very grateful that I was able to do that. Mm. Um, I got the COVID results about three days later. Back then it wasn't that quick. So it took a, actually probably took a week mm. in total. And it said inconclusive. And it was very frustrating mm. because... I don't know if it was because the test was done wrong or, or what it was, whether it was done too late. I'll never know. And I've kind of struggled with it a bit, but I guess ultimately it doesn't matter right. um, because there isn't really any treatment in uh, at the kind of stage I was in. The end treatment was for my pneumonia. Um, and I was, I felt safe in the knowledge that I was being cared for virtually. And I felt like if I needed it, I could have gone back in. Hmm. In terms of immunity, it would have been helpful to know. People have asked if I'd done the antibody test. I haven't because there's not really one at the moment that seems to be reliable. Mm. You have to pay for them unless you're randomly selected to take part in this trial. Right. I've spoken to people that have, you know, that, that definitely had a positive test, have since done an uh, antibody test and it said negative. Mm. So I don't know what it will tell me. It will either tell me, positive and then okay positive or it will tell me negative and I won't know if that's because I didn't have it or because mm. I just no longer got the antibodies so at this stage I just I kind of also just want to move away from it and yeah. it's been you know pretty much six months um I people always ask how you know have I got any symptoms of long COVID I I'm I've had a cardio MRIs I've had um a lung function test and so I have had some follow-up tests and I'm pleased to say those are normal-ish. They found out I had a, an enlarged pulmonary artery, but they found that actually before I got COVID. Mm. So it wasn't as a result, mm -hmm. but uh, the investigations to look into that were put on pause because of lockdown. So that was resumed. Um, I definitely feel more fatigued, but again, I don't know if that's because I'm deconditioned and I'm not as busy and moving as I normally am. Right. And so it'll be interesting to see when life is back to normal, if I still feel that level of fatigue. Right. But it's been hard. It's, uh, you know, I'm, I'm struggling with the recent re-restrictions in the UK, yeah. this lack of control, this feeling of it being never ending, the confusion. I definitely feel like mentally it's, it's really taking a toll. And I think everyone is feeling the same. Yeah. Yeah, it's a heavy energy. And I think, um, obviously, from what you do, you're probably a pretty empathetic person, <laughs> from what I've, yeah. what I've seen from you. And I think when we're empaths, we take on this energy of the world, whether it's affecting us directly or not, it's all of there's so much going on in 2020, you know, from a COVID perspective, and even just from a you know, human rights perspective, there's just very heavy energy going on. As a matter of fact, you um, did a, I believe it was a, a coalition for, excuse me, I'm, I'm not remembering what it was specifically. Breaking down barriers. Breaking down barriers. Thank you. Yes. Can you talk about that a little bit? I think that's such an important Absolutely. piece of work. Yeah, I mean, we launched that in January of this year before any of the protests happened on um, what, what happened with uh, with everything that we've seen happen with Black Lives Matter. So this was the priority to us always. And really what we're seeing, and not just in EDS, across rare chronic invisible diseases generally, is a real barrier to being able to get diagnosis, care, management, validation. And we want to understand what those barriers are. You know, we know their gender, race, um, wealth, geography, age, 
uh, sexuality, all of these different things are providing uh, barriers to be able to to help people and and further their care and their access to what they need and deserve. And we wanted to, of course, first understand it, but then work collaboratively to try and fix it. And I think that that's what's essential here. We all know-ish the dialogue. We really want to hear it articulated properly and from voices from all over the world. But what do we do to make it better? Um, and that's why the Breaking Down Barriers campaign was launched. We have our diversity and inclusion coordinator, Marisa, who oversees that. She's fantastic. Um, and that, I think, what's happened globally has just, you know, made us realise even more so how, on, you know, on point we were with realising that as a priority and really increasing even more so. You know, one big thing that we're doing as an organisation, which was something that we planned for in, with our events and and this effort is leading to even quicker is translating things so much more because language is a huge barrier and we take for granted as English speakers that most of the access that we have to information is in English but if you're in Africa, India, Asia, uh, even parts of Europe you may not be able to find a single article in your language that you can even give to a doctor let alone finding a doctor that will know about it. So that's something that we as an organization can do. It's more expensive than you would ever imagine mm. uh, translating materials. It's blew us away, mm. but it's a priority and it's where we're putting some of our budget uh, to translating live events and translating resources on our website. Wonderful. I love that you're doing that. Thank you again for noticing that that was a need and, and taking action to correct it. Um, actually, it was so impressive in the virtual conference that you had in this 2020 virtual conference that was supposed to be held in my hometown of Scottsdale, Arizona. I, I saw that you translated all of the different, you know, the people had options for how many different languages, do you recall? It, we did four or five, to five, five including English. Mm -hmm. And we, so for one example of the long game, you know, we decided to translate into Arabic. Mm -hmm. And that was because I think we had three people join live to listen in Arabic, but that didn't matter to us because we knew that what we were doing was creating resources for the first time in Arabic that hadn't been there before. So it's really, it's, it's a mix of, okay, we know like, for example, French is one of the most spoken languages, but what's the most language in need? And the reason there's only three or four people there is because we haven't been able to reach them yet right. because there aren't these translated materials. So you've got to kind of go backwards to be able to build that audience. And we reached, uh, the, we had 1,600 people uh, register and join us li uh, live for that conference. And 80% of those were first-time attendees to any of our events, which blew our mind and showed actually how many barriers there were for those 80% of people to never have been able to join us previously at an event. So that in itself, those statistics just show by being able to be virtual, how many more people you're reaching and breaking down barriers just by putting on the event. And we're really excited at the end of this month, we're gonna be making a big announcement about our plans for 2021 and, and how many people we plan to reach. It's wonderful, wonderful. So Laura, let's get a little more personal with your story. I want to hear about when you were younger, kind of how you came to realize that something wasn't quite right and your uh, issues with your health and what led to your diagnosis? Yeah, so I was symptomatic from the age of 11. Um, that was, I, I fractured my wrists 27 times, um, not because my bones were brittle, but because all the tissues surrounding them were so destroyed and there was just no cushioning. And people just thought that that meant I was a hypochondriac or accident prone or unlucky. And no one ever pieced the everything together you know i had endometriosis polycystic ovaries inflammatory bowel disease i had ibs symptoms had surgery i think i had like 16 or 17 general anesthetics growing up um but people just didn't really piece anything together that obviously made it a very hard journey my teens uh, were very hard and i felt not heard and not believed which has a big impact especially as in parallel you're dealing with well i was dealing with my sexuality and uh, being gay and what that meant and then when I was 24 I went to see a dietitian who for the first time sat down and wrote every single thing down and said I think you've got Marfan syndrome mm. and I looked it up and I was like wow because I have quite a lot of Marfanoid uh, physical attributes I have a big pectus excavatum dent in my chest high arch palate 
uh, long flat feet, caused the joint pain, dislocations. And so it made a lot of sense to me. And I was referred immediately to a genetics um, hospital and a connective tissue uh, specialist and was diagnosed with EDS. And it was actually one of the best days ever because for the first time I got answers, I got validation, I was believed and everything finally made sense. And that was kind of the beginning of, of the next chapter of my life. And it was, uh, it, it enabled me to have a much better quality of life. You know, knowledge is power ultimately and having access to the right treatments and looking at things holistically and, you know, multi-systemically definitely made things easier. Yes. Yes. And boy, could I relate to that being the best day ever that, that day that you got that diagnosis, because it is so difficult when, as you know, when you're going from doctor to doctor to doctor and not getting answers and not being believed and being told you're fine and knowing, you know, in your heart, that that's definitely not the case. So yeah, when I when I got my diagnosis, I think people were, you know, so taken aback and and are you okay and how do you feel? And I'm like, great. <laughs> this is wonderful that I have that I finally finally have an answer. It was such a relief to know that, you know, that I wasn't nuts, that I wasn't imagining everything. So, absolutely. Completely relate. So, Laura having been through this and, and going through the journey of, of diagnosis and certainly being around so many people that, you know, are in this, are in a similar situation. What would you tell people that are kind of in the beginning of their discovery process and maybe still in that, in that stage where they're not being believed or not have, you know, they don't have a firm diagnosis, whether it's EDS or other rare conditions, what would be your advice to people that are in that situation? I would say prepare yourself mentally for the fact that you're living with something that has no cure. You're never going to get satisfying answers for that. There's no real treatment for. And once you accept that mentally, the physical becomes much easier to then navigate and deal with. I also think it's essential that you're not scared to build a bridge between the mind and the body. I speak about this a lot as someone that was told it was all in my head for years. When anyone suggested that I look at this from a mental health approach, I would be like, what are you saying? It's not in my head. This is real. It's physical. And of course, no one's questioning that. Um, but I completely understand people who are threatened by that offer because we've spent so many years saying this is very physical. This is not mental. But how are you in any way supposed to be able to deal with something that's there for the rest of your life that impacts you every single day, that might take away the choices and plans and decisions that you've made for your life, that impacts everyone around you? You need uh, mental health support to get through that. And some people might not. But what I advocate all the time is that at the point of diagnosis, which should be given at the time symptoms begin, no matter what age you are, that you are offered a multidisciplinary approach pathway that includes mental health support as well as physical long-term, you know, something in the NHS. So often you get six weeks of physiotherapy. I mean, six weeks in the, in the grand scheme of things, it's going to do absolutely nothing. Right. So this chronic health approach needs to change and this understanding, and this is where the patient needs to really take responsibility as well, is understanding that the mental health side of things is just as important as the physical and to not be threatened by that and to accept that help and not be scared that that means that it's in your head because it's absolutely not and not be scared to think that that labels you with having mental health issues. It's the same way as accepting physical therapy. You know, you need that physical therapy to be able to deal with the body you've got. You need that um, support mentally to be able to deal with the body you've got. And so the two should come hand in hand. And that's the biggest advice I'd get. And, and, you know, I think I used to, I spent my life going to doctor after doctor after doctor. I very rarely go to the doctor anymore. Mm. Very rarely. Mm -hmm. Because there is nothing that can be done. So unless something acute happens, so like if I have an injury or if I, my cardiac symptoms are much, much worse, other than that, it's, I don't, you know, that I don't, surgery is the very last thing, you know, I'm living with a big tear in my glute, a meniscus tear, a glute, a tendon tear in my ankle, all of them, if I was a normal person in inverted commas, I've been told by various surgeons, I've had second, third opinions that I need surgery, 
you know, I spoke to one orthopedic specialist in EDS. She said, do not even think about it. You know, hmm. and the, the reality is I'm privileged that I get to speak to that person. Most of us, you know, most of the community will never have the opportunity to have access to a surgeon who is so knowledgeable about EDS that would say, don't have that surgery. Instead, most people see a problem and we want to fix it. And we want to fix it either with drugs or with surgery because that's how the healthcare system is set up. And at the moment, those two options don't really do much for EDS. Right. And that's incredibly frustrating and it's not good enough. And we need better therapies, better management options but it's really understanding the holistic as well diet meditation mindfulness movement um, I think if someone would have told me when I was diagnosed how important and life-changing moving would be and building muscle my life my earlier years of my health would have been very very different because it doesn't just help the physical it helps your autonomic symptoms POTS circulation GI symptoms your mood, you know, everything. So that's huge as well. And when people hear movement, don't be intimidated and think it means you have to be thrashing out at the gym or running, you know, movement can be doing online classes with YouTube, just adapting. I always say if it hurts at the point of movement, stop, but always be prepared. It's going to hurt afterwards because that happens to anyone with anyone's body. So don't be scared of that kind of a delayed onset muscle soreness and that fatigue um that, that that can happen to anyone but do take note if it happens during the movement right right so you you made me think of something when you were talking about the tears in your glutes and this and that so you did a full feature film uh issues with my tissues i believe was the name of it yes and in that film, you documented your training and you're going through uh, preparation for a marathon, which you completed, which is absolutely incredible. So can you talk a little bit about what was it that drove you to do that? And how did you have the mental stamina to get through that and complete the marathon? Congratulations for that, by the way. That's incredible. Thank you. And nine long years ago now feels like a million years ago but yeah I always say I walked it on my mind you know I'm very lucky that I have a strong mind I have a strong support system I prioritize my mental health so I I have a strong mind at that point what let me down was my body um, and I, it was the first time I'd ever done movement or exercise ever the most I'd walked before that was one or two miles with agonizing pain mm. and so it was a real challenge for me. And that's why when people say, oh, it's all right for you, you can exercise, you can do this, you can do that. I was once like those people who can't do anything. I had to use a wheelchair to go shopping. My pots were so bad. You know, I couldn't move without unbelievable pain in my legs and my back and my shoulders and my neck. And when I realized that I wouldn't be doing any necessarily any more damage by building up those muscles, it might cause pain and fatigue. And again, I was very privileged. I had an entire team around me. I had a, a hypermobile specialist in Pilates, doctors monitoring me and you know, ma managing the whole process. And that gave me the safety net to be able to push my barriers, which ordinarily no one has that. You know, sure. we, we may find a really a knowledgeable or uh, willing to learn phys physical therapist or doctor, but on the whole, you don't get to have them constantly when you're doing that exercise. So I understand that the situation I was in was very different and not usual. But what it made me realize is how by that gentle walking, by the gentle Pilates, you know, everything was very gentle. I didn't go crazy that I did. It was possible. Now I always joke and say, don't do a marathon because I did fracture my foot on the 13th mile. Um, you know, I, I do have um, a connective tissue condition. So obviously not recommended, but that, process changed my life for the better in so many ways and I have actually on paper I'm worse than I've ever been but reality is I actually have a better quality of life now I deal with it so much better because I keep my muscles strong and I keep moving and I really look at my therapy in a holistic way so I do think about all of those things I haven't had surgery for 
well over a decade. Um, I really avoid it wherever I can and just keep those muscles strong. And it's, it's been miraculous that and high dose vitamin C. Right. I've seen that on your, on your vlogs. So looking back at your journey, if there was anything that you could change, what would it be? And would you change anything? Um, million dollar question. I don't think I would change anything because I am incredibly grateful for my life and my career that I've worked very, very hard for, uh, that I never expected. I was a photographer. Uh, if you would have told me even 11 years ago that I would be doing this, that I'd be a professor, that I would speak at the places that I've spoken about in parliament, uh, you know, visited the capital, you know, spoken at the EU in Brussels. Like I just never would have imagined it in a million years. And I feel blessed and grateful every day that I do. Um, so I wouldn't change anything. Would I change that I have this condition? I, I don't think I could because I wouldn't be who I am today and I wouldn't do what I have, you know, what I have accomplished. So it's a very difficult question. Um, I think that I would love, I would love to see change quicker. I think one of the hardest things to deal with is, is being the punch bag to people's frustrations. You know, when people frustrated that HSD isn't acknowledged in the same way EDS is that they're not getting diagnosed and the reason given is the 2017 criteria I'm personally blamed or the society is blamed and actually the reality is neither had anything to do with it in the sense that it was the international consortium which is an independent group of people and experts I was on the paper because I was gave my patient expert voice there were things that i gave as my recommendations that weren't published in the end and weren't agreed on because it's a collaborative global effort and you know when i read things like the criteria was based around my physical attributes i laugh because i barely meet the criteria these days um it's it's just it's offensive and it's saddening and that is the hardest part and i think i understand where it comes from it comes from people being frustrated and in pain and bitter and angry with their situation I completely understand but it's not my fault <laughs> and it's not the society's fault and actually for the first time ever there is an organization that is fighting so hard to change what has take what what has gone wrong over decades it's not going to happen overnight you know people were saying EDS was just getting recognized when you change the criteria well look how many decades that took to do and it's going to take a really long time for HSD to be recognized. But still EDS wasn't being recognized in the way it was. It wasn't respected. It wasn't validated. It wasn't taken seriously. And people who have had a negative experience don't realize that what we are finding and what we are hearing is that EDS and HSD has never been more respected. There's never been this awareness. There's never been so many efforts in education and changing things systemically. You know, in my role at EDS UK and all the work that was done previous to 2015 was putting a massive band-aid over a gaping wound. And what I committed to doing when we set up the society and relaunched it from EDNF was building on these incredible efforts that EDNF had done, EDS UK had done, many, many other national organizations to now say, okay, thank you for helping that wound, keep that band-aid on. Now we're going to come in and we're going to stitch it up and we're going to try and let it heal because that's what there had never been the funding capacity or collaboration efforts to do. And that's what the society have brought in. And I'm so incredibly proud of what we've achieved. And I do find it incredibly frustrating when I see people who are, you know, trying to tarnish our reputation by blaming us for these, you know, things that just don't make sense in any way you know we've we've gone out of our way to make attempts we held a webinar at the beginning of the year called ask the society where we actually address those questions even if they felt ridiculous because they're not ridiculous if someone is worried about them and concerned about them so we we've validated everyone's concerns by answering them and by addressing everything everything we did not leave anything out and that certainly helped but i think 
there's still this sense of got to go out and get them. And, and unfortunately, that has been a personal target as well. You know, to the point when I was ill with COVID, people saying I was making it up oh. and I was exaggerating and I was lying. Oh, and, terrible. You know, I'm so privileged. I'm this and I'm that. And I, I'm not in touch with this and that. And that I, I seem too well to have EDS. And, you know, just it, it's very, very hard. Now, could I have done anything differently to change that? I don't believe I could because I've just tried to do everything I can with integrity and with, with the best of intentions. Um, so we'll see, you know, I hope people realize the changes that we're making and, and the good that we're trying to do and that we only ever have the community and their interests at the heart of everything that we're doing. You know, the, the whole debate on calling it a rare disease saying that we're, we're steered by having funding by rare disease organizations and pharma we've never had a penny from rare disease mm. organizations um ever uh, any funding that because we're a rare disease and it's like well but it doesn't stop people saying that's the reason that's the reason they're pushing where the reason we're pushing rare is because there's 14 types of eds all of them bar one is absolutely fundamentally rare it's you can't argue that and there's one that is really prevalent and we need to know how prevalent but until we have the scientific evidence to prove that it is deemed a rare disease because it's one in five thousand which is what nord categorizes as a rare disease so we're not making these rules up we're going by science we're going by evidence and um, until we have the evidence to show hypermobile eds not hsd and hypermobile eds because hsd i think is incredibly prevalent we might find out it's one of the the most prevalent conditions of our time but hypermobile eds using the right criteria that's where we need to find out truly what the prevalence is and we don't know that yet and we need more prevalence studies more epidemiological studies more 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 of everything you know we have for the first time ever given the opportunity for that research to take place by offering out research grants. And they are open to everyone from all over the world. Mm. And I hope that we see in time the fruits of that, that investment in research because it's just not been there at all historically. Right, right. So, Laura, what, what is next for you and the society? What are, you, what are your immediate goals? breaking down barriers to get as much translated as possible we're working on a new website that we will be launching um the end of this year or next year covid has definitely delayed things so that's incredibly exciting and that's going to be really accessible building our virtual events uh, sustainability growth more and more research funding that we want to get in place um and all of that living in the challenge of a global pandemic so we know what we want to do. There might be some adjustments like the hedge study. We've had to make it virtual enrollment now. We're excited to get all of a thousand people enrolled onto that, truly start to answer those questions that that study will lead to. But really just sustaining this incredible organization with this team that are just rock stars. You know, it takes a village. People see my face and hear my name. But let me tell you, the people who are all part of making this possible from the staff to the board, to the consortium coalition, everyone that we work with, all those stakeholders that are, all make up this effort. It's an absolute privilege to work alongside them. It really is. Wonderful. And, you know, I was a little shocked, I guess, to hear that, you know, some of the people out there that are, you know, not appreciative of the work that you're doing. And I, I see nothing but pure, compassion for, you know, and, and, and passion for the cause. So I personally want to thank you for all that you're doing. I think it's incredible, incredible, such meaningful, it's such important work. So um, thank you. Appreciate it. And, you know, I think, I think it's important to remember that when there are people out there challenging us with that's, you know, that's important conversations to have you know we we need to listen it's part of the whole breaking down barriers if we're not doing something in the right way we, we want to hear that and so i welcome that i think it's just how it's done mm -hmm. um which is everyone needs to remember to be kind and to be gracious to everyone and i think i also always forgive any any attacks i've had because i remember that that is coming from a place of pain and frustration and probably a lifetime of of that and more so you know, I, I, I remain 
open and here for every single person in our community even if they don't particularly like me or appreciate what I or us as an organization have done uh, we're here for you um, I'd like to represent you and if there's ways that we're not doing that I'm always open to hearing how we can improve that right great so Laura, I, this is kind of an odd question, but I, I have this bracelet that I'm wearing. It's a, called a My Intent bracelet. I don't know if you've ever heard of them, but it's essentially, it's kind of like to remind yourself of what's important to you and kind of to send yourself a message throughout the day. Mine says, live my purpose. My purpose has become to advocate for this community also. And, um, you know, to really help people to find the tools so that they can heal both physically and mentally. So if you were to have a My Intent bracelet, what would be your little message to yourself that you'd put on there? Goodness. Um, <laughs> it could be like one think, to three words. <laughs> well, I think what I always, you know, I'm, I believe in the law of attraction and I affirm and practice gratitude daily. And mm -hmm. I think the one simple thing I always say to myself that captures it mentally for me, everything is kind of live your best life. Be the best version of you. And that to me captures being the best friend I can, the best wife I can, the best CEO I can, the best team member I can, the best advocate that I can, you know, because you can't, it's hard to be the best you can every day. People say that like, it's just a flippant thing to say, my God, does it require work? Mm -hmm. And you know, um, it, it's, it's a lot when you're dealing with a lot. And so I think, being, you know, being the best version of myself that I can be would be my intent. Right. Beautiful. Yeah. I actually have a picture hanging on my wall that says my best is enough. And mm -hmm. just a constant reminder that even on those days when we're not able to do all the things that we'd like to do, and, you know, sometimes hardly anything at all, getting out of bed is, is a monumental effort to just remind ourselves that we're, we're doing our best given what we've got to work with. So that's all, that's all anybody can expect of anybody. And I think that, you know, having that love for yourself and that compassion for yourself as much as you do for this community is, is also so, so important. And that, that's something I'm learning to do is to have compassion for myself and love for myself and forgiveness for myself on those days when, quite frankly, I can't be all that I want to be because there's, you know, like you, there's many, many things that I want to do in this, in this community and, and to help. And, uh, but you know, we're, we're patients too. And we're just, we're just trying to do our, our, our very best. Um, what would you say, uh, you know, either personally or professionally, what's lighting you up right now? What are you most excited about? I'm struggling to feel lit up at the moment. I posted about this on social media. I'm definitely feeling the weight of what's going on mm. uh, globally. But I, I guess what is lighting me up, the things that I'm holding on to are the amazing work that we're doing. I think I'm really excited for 2021. We've adapted, we've changed, and we're doing things we wouldn't have done without COVID. Um, and I think it's for the better. So I'm grateful for, again, that, that challenge giving us an opportunity. I am excited personally because we've just moved into this house and we're going to do some work on it and, and, and that will be very, very exciting. Um, so, and I love this time of year. This is my favorite time of year, like pumpkins and fires and crunchy leaves and wrapping up warm. And so I, I'm trying to enjoy all those things and not letting COVID and what's happening stop me from savoring the good. Yes. Yes. Great. It's a great message. So I always like to provide tools to my audience and you being one of the best advocates I know, how, what advice can you give other people on how to best advocate for themselves? I would say, know your story, own your story. Don't be scared to share it, but also remember that when you're advocating for a community, you need to represent the full community. And so really learn and educate yourself on all the different types 
um, and or not. And just instead, when you're advocating, just make it clear that you're advocating for yourself and your story. I just think it's important uh, when people are advocating and out talking about EDS and they're doing it through their lens. That's absolutely commended and, and good. But you need to always make sure that you're advocating and you're saying you're telling your story, not the EDS and HSD story. So just be clear on what you're doing and how you want to do it and just take advantage of the resources that are out there to help you on that journey. Mm -hmm. And what about advocating for ourselves as patients? I mean, you know, you've, again, you've been through both sides of the journey. What were some of the things that you did that really helped to kind of move the needle with your situation? I think being true to myself, not taking you know, knowing my rights, so knowing that you can get second opinions and you can go to other doctors and to accept sometimes that you're not going to get the answers that you want to hear. So uh, just measuring what it is you need and what it is you want. And they might be two different things um, and you might not get what you want, but you'll hopefully get what you need. Right, right. All right, Laura, we are almost at the top of the hour, so I want to respect your time. I'm just going to ask you one last question to wrap it up because the name of the podcast is The Chronically Courageous. So what does courage mean to you? It's a good question. Courage means to me being true to who you are and having the courage to live your life as true to yourself as you can, whatever that will be, and not conforming to what you think society should you know should be so i think that's true courage living your true true life as your true self beautiful all right thank you so so much for your time today it's been an absolute thank pleasure you i appreciate you being flexible with timing and it being so early there um i'm grateful for your time as well no worries i i lied one more question how can people find you how can people find the society where should we look for you so uh type in Laura Bloom to pretty much any platform and you'll find me. Um, and same with the society on Instagram, airless.danlos, um, on Twitter, the ED society. I'm Laura.bloom on Instagram. I think Laura.bloom on Twitter, but my website is larabloom.com. And on there is a vlogs, talks, podcasts, uh, links to all my social media and any publications I've been involved in. So everything's all in that place. Wonderful. All right. Again, thank you so, so much. <clears throat> Be well. Thank you. And you too. Yes. And keep your, keep your chin up. I know this is a, this is a challenging time, but I have faith that next year we will be together in Scottsdale at the conference. So I can't wait to, to see you there. Indeed. All right. Thank you so thank much. Thank you, Laura. Have a wonderful day. <laughs> Bye-bye. You too. Bye-bye. It means the world to me that you took your time and energy to listen to this entire episode of The Chronically Courageous. If you know others that would benefit from listening, please share it with them. And if you haven't yet, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your podcast player of choice. I welcome your feedback and questions. So please email me at bonnie at thechronicallycourageous.com. That's B-O-N-N-I at thechronicallycourageous.com. As always, I'm sending you so much love, happiness, and healing.